But today, for the next 13 years, 10,000 salespeople every day become retirement eligible. Hello, everyone. This is Ellen, the producer of The Black Line Between Sales and Marketing, with Doug Davidoff, CEO of Imagine Business Development, and Mike Donnelly, CEO of Seven Cents. Let's get started. All righty, Siggy. I've been looking forward to this conversation for at least eight months. Um, and you know the time that that, that, that all started. So let's let's tee you up and, and, and get you started. Let, let's let's talk about the future of sales and salespeople. Give us your take on that. Ah, uh, this is a, this is such a highly contested topic. I was actually reading I was reading um I don't know, an article where somebody had pointed out that let me make sure I get the right stat. I have it right in front of me here, that ninety-five percent of salespeople will be, be replaced by artificial intelligence within the next 20 years. That's just a ruffle the feathers type comment, I think. And I was reading all the, this is a LinkedIn post, by the way, I'll send you the article. In the commentary, commentary in that article, almost every single person said, misinformed, doesn't understand how people buy, people buy from people. And you know, the thought that just went into my mind immediately was, no, they don't. People don't buy from people. Now, they certainly do buy from people sometimes, but not all the time. And I think that in the future, we're just, we are, I mean, do I think it's going to go to 95%? No, but I do think that there's this tidal wave that has already come and quite frankly is crashing. And I think you're going to see like a series of tidal waves come over and over and over again that like, this is only going to continue. Like if you want to see what the future of sales is, look to see what Look to see how a, a five-year-old is learning. Look to see how a 10-year-old is learning. Look to see how they interact with their friends, how they communicate with people. That's what the future is. Not to pull too much, you know, what is it, Michael Jackson and like, you know, the children are our future. But the, I mean, literally, I mean, that's, that's, you know, those are the people that are going to be selling and buying in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And all you have to do to figure out what it's going to look like is figure out, you know, how are they communicating now? How do they want to consume information, engage with each other, so on and so forth? I feel like we're on PTI in the error section. That was Whitney Houston who sang the children. Oh, Whitney Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, on on, on that point, and and I'll certainly hit to some challenges in in, in a few, but on that point, um, I do a lot of work in the uh, multifamily um, housing industry. And one of the interesting trends that's happening is the number of people that are renting apartments and actually, frankly, even buying homes sight unseen. Um, so it's like, I mean, it's a millennial, it's a, a millennial driven place, but they're, they're doing their internet research. They're getting their, their, their virtual tour and they're buying the house, like making, you know, a hundred multi hundred thousand dollar purchase mortgage, the whole thing. And the first time they ever see the house is after they move in, which clearly if we were talking to real estate agents, heck six months ago, hell today, they would tell you that people don't buy that way. Um, d- d- despite that that's there. Well, you know, the I bought a house that way. Did you? Yeah, I did. It was a, it was a rental property or investment property. I always said you were a millennial, Donnelly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a millennial at heart. Millennial. So. Yeah. so tell tell us a little bit more about that, Mike. Like how did how did you actually find 
Like what was the process you went through? Like, how'd you find the home? Like which listing sites you use? Like what was the purchasing process? How'd you grab a mortgage? Like, was that all, all without humans or like, how did that? Work? No, it, 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 great question. It, it, it wasn't at all. So I was working with an agent that I know that I was looking for a investment property and it was, I don't know, three years ago when, when the market, I mean, the market's still in the DC area is incredibly hot. And it was a foreclosure that came up and I said, let's just move on it. And the reason, the reason why I just said, Hey, I'll, I'll buy this thing. So I don't see is because there's all kinds of ways for me to back out of it at that point. Um, you know, whether it be condo docs, you know, whatever, but I was, I pulled the trigger without even even seeing the place. Hmm. Well, you know, well, you know the hottest, the hottest but, line of mortgage right now is, is rocket mortgage, which is, you know, phone app, click this. And, you know, I haven't done it, yep. but from everything I understand the, the whole thing, you know, everything that, uh, that, um, that Cricket Online did, or, or I forget who did it, but um, everything was about how do we take, how do we take all that friction that naturally exists in the mortgage process? And, you know, Siggy, what I think, what I think it gets to when you say people don't buy from humans, and I think this is like a crucially important thing for people to understand is people buy in the least disruptive manner possible. Whatever is the path of least resistance. Um, now we'll get to this later because sometimes strategically, I think you want to you want to introduce resistance. It's it, it, it's part of a sales strategy. But when we say people want to buy from people, you know, remember the days when when we thought people wanted to check out of grocery stores with people, and now you take a look at it and where you know where are all the aisles going? They're all going to self service checkout. Well, so this is a, this is an interesting point. You know, there's a guy. Um, I don't know if you ever come across this guy, Derek. His name is Derek Wazinski. Um, he's a chief sales hacker at Zinbit. He writes some awesome kind of like futuristic articles about what sales might look like. He wrote this one that's awesome called John Henry, the salesperson. And, um, he made a point to me the other day. He said, you know, every time I hear people buy from people, I ask myself, you know, when you went to Blockbuster and you were like renting movies and there are people working there that are helping you. Or when you went to Circuit City to go buy your electronics, or when you went to Borders to buy, you know, your books or whatever, there were plenty of people to work there, hundreds of thousands of them. Do you miss any one of them? Do you actually miss any one of those people? Now, granted, like I'm not talking about the tens of millions of dollars of like, you know, a jet engine or like, you know, building a you know, a, a brand new, like global headquarters for your company, like a very different, you know, simple B2C sale versus maybe highly complex B2B sale. I grant, I totally appreciate and recognize there's a major difference there. But I just think that, you know, people that are saying like people buy from people, like I love people. I don't see anybody, I don't see anybody out there raising their hand saying like, please, for the love of God, like just let a salesperson call me today. That's all I want to hear about. I want to buy from a person today. They don't, they, we just don't, the, the thing is we don't, we don't sell the way that we buy. And I think that is a truth that is going to become just more codified in the coming, I don't know, decade, decades, maybe. So I don't think that's a new truth though. And I think this is where a lot of people get lost, right? When, when was the last time you put a bunch of people together that said, Hey, you know what? Um, let me tell you about my great experience with salespeople. Like, I mean, I, I, Stanley Feud once asked the question, what profession is best suited for a liar? He used to tell this in sales training all the time. Yep. Number one, answer a salesperson. Number two, answer lawyer. Number three, answer politician. I used to say that means if you're ever at a party and someone says to you, so what do you do? And you go, oh, I'm in sales. And they're excited to meet you. 
that means they're either a lawyer or a politician. Because <laughs> they're going, man, everybody hates me, but at least you're here, right? I mean, you know, it's, I, it's interesting you say it because I, I don't even say that I work in sales unless I'm forced. I tell people, and I mean, I, I try to change. I, I'm trying to do better with this, but like so many times, I mean, it depends on my audience, right? Um, but oftentimes people that I meet for the first time through friends, family, whatever, they say, what do you do? My first answer is I work for a software company. That's it. Yeah. And I, I leave it at that unless they press, oh, which software company? What do they do? What do you do for them? It's not until then that I say, well, I work in sales. Right. You know, before the days of my, um, you know, Bluetooth headsets and so you could just sit down on a plane and, and tune everybody out. You know, I mean, I would travel. I mean, I used to travel four to six flights a week, three weeks a month. Um, and, you know, I'd get on flight and I would not feel like talking to people. And I learned the best way because, you know, someone would start chit chatting with you. And the best way to get somebody to stop talking to you was I'd turn and go, oh, what do you do? And they'd go, they would say, oh, well, I'm uh, whatever. What do you do? And I go, I'm in sales. And they go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And I'm exaggerating like just a teeny bit. But it was like, and if I really didn't want to talk, I said, oh, I sell insurance. And that was like, <laughs> they have to be receded. Um, you know, and, and, and so I think, you know, a large part of this problem, and, and I think that uh, it's probably too late, but a large part of this problem is that, I mean, sales, ha sales has created this problem of its own making. Right. We, 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 we've peddled, Absolutely. we've manipulated, we've controlled. Um, we don't teach, we don't help. There's, we, we waste people's time that, that, you know, now with artificial intelligence and, and, and machine learning, which I realize that's the same thing, but you know, people buy from people because theoretically, because of the, because there's empathy. Well, well, the scary thing is there's a lot more empathy and in, in machine learning then there isn't salespeople sometimes because at least if you tell the machine something, they don't act like you never said it. Yep. I mean, this is, this is so like, we can't, okay, this is a critical point in the conversation. Yeah, well, don't worry, I'm, I'm about gonna, to jump. I'm, yeah, I'm going to let you choose which rabbit hole we go down or okay. none of them. But is this the time that we start talking about, remember our like spirited debate about, you know, the whole problem centers around compensation structure. Oh, we're going to go missions. We're going to go. I think I, so this is the thing. So like, you know, I think the fundamental problem is that bias is an inherent part of the conversation. Okay. Let's hold off there. Let's not go there yet. All right. I'll pause, but I'm just going to okay. throw that out there just for people to marinate on. Because, because, you know, I love you, you know, I'm a big fan of yours and, and you, and I see you throw around a couple of stats that every time I see you throw it around, it, it, it's like figuring it out on a chalkboard. Now, I'm not telling you to do anything differently because I know what your job is and I know, you know, and, and I understand. But I think this is where, I think this is where, and this is a large part of, of what this show is about. 95% of salespeople will, will be replaced. I've seen you quote the, I think it's Forrester or Gartner number, 80% um, yep. of salespeople are going to be replaced by. The million, the million jobs will be gone by 2020. Right. So I've but changed like 80, my tune, but go on, 80, go on. I, I changed 80%, my tune. 80% 80, 80 of sales will take place without human interaction, I think is what I saw from something. But I, I wonder, I almost wonder how much of that is, you know, you've got markets that are really commodity, you know, very commoditized markets, and then you've got very complex markets. And Brian, you, you brought this up at the beginning, or when you first started talking about it, I wonder what the breakdown of percentages, you know, of complex B2B, whether that's software, tech, whatever it might be, 
are, are those jobs really going to get replaced or is it more the, you know, commoditized well, markets, which well, is, I, I do believe because there's a tremendous amount of friction there. And then not only that, you don't have, you know, we'll call it high caliber salespeople that can truly deliver value in some of those, you know, commoditized, you know, commoditized markets. So this is, this is the ugly truth. It's not even ugly. It's just, I think it's just the truth. Um, I'll call myself out on those, on, on those stats. It's exactly the point that you made, Mike, is how do you define what is being sold? Because if you include all e-commerce and all commodity style products, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but yeah, I'd be willing to bet that like 80% of that can be done without a salesperson. But that doesn't mean that there's still a, a huge, huge volume a product being sold in a B2B, more highly complex space that will not be automated. And frankly, as far as machine learning goes today, you know, and the, and the AI output of it, like it's not capable of actually learning how to do that yet. Um, and that's well, what I think qualifying. Yeah. That. So I, I, I think, I think, you know, adding to this complexity of, you know, folks like Gardner and others that are saying that, you know, 80, 90, 95, whatever the number is, percentage of salespeople that are going to be replaced in the next decade or two. One of the fundamental challenges is on the AI and machine learning side, we do not have the talent to build the technology, technology. To, to actually replace, you know, that, that, that market as a whole. It, just the pure talent doesn't exist. So um, like I mean, I see it in how complex our system is. And there's just not enough people in the world to, you know, there's, there's not enough intelligent, I shouldn't say intelligent, but there's not enough software developers that have that skill set to really drive uh, to where we're, you know, where Gardner says we're going in five years, 10 years. It, 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 again, that's my, my opinion, but go ahead, Doug. That, that's until they built Skynet and we have the artificial intelligence programmers that develop <laughs> the artificial intelligence programming. Uh, so the, the, the point that I wanted to just kind of really surface where a lot of these stats get lost, and so I want to focus in our conversation, is, is think about office supplies, right? Think about a company that buys multiple millions of dollars of office supplies. It's actually a very complex supply chain and logistics process that, that a company like Staples does a tremendous job of. And, and, and if you deal with, with Staples enterprise salespeople, it's a very highly complex sale. Well, I make, I sign that contract once every three to seven years. That's typically how long the contracts are. And then I make thousands and thousands of sales that occur without humans, right? I go, and, and so that, that is where a lot of this, I mean, and I know you're an old CEB guy and I love that, but that, that's where a lot of the CEB research really, I think, does a disservice as we say 67% of all sales. Well, right, because, you know, 50% of sales, 100% gets done without, you know, any human interaction or, or, or before I talk to a salesperson. What I, the, 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 the scary thing and, and why I wanted to talk about this on this show, because I, I, I don't think you would disagree with that, is you have the people that then write that off, which I think is what you got to in the beginning, Siggy. They go, oh, you don't understand. Oh, well, that's just this. It, it, it's complex sales. Um, oh, and I know you're not saying this, Mike, but oh, there aren't enough programmers to be able to do this. See, I have nothing to worry about. I'm a nice, good ostrich. Let me stick my head in the sand. Let's, <laughs> you know, let, let, let's talk about, for lack, let, let's just say 80% of sales, just to keep it simple, 80% of sales that occur are simple transaction-based sales, right? And 20% of sales that occur, just to, again, that, that, that's the complex side. So let, 
is that a fair like kind of draw that out and and now we have no research to back up anything we say so no one can say that we're wrong <laughs> uh, we we are at the end of the day salespeople and marketers so we <laughs> can't lose sight of that um so here's my, my question, question for for you for mike and, and for you siggy for that 20 percent for the for that complex sale where where we can say today it doesn't matter this this doesn't apply to me um what should i be paying attention to why, why is that such a dangerous thing to think about why is that such a dangerous mindset uh you know again this is just my opinions but you know here's some things to think about um you know i think that if you I mean, if you've worked, if you've worked in B2B sales, you know, for the past even year, um, and you want to get me on the phone or, I mean, I'll welcome you, like send me a LinkedIn mail, you know, email me, bsignorelli at hubspot.com, throw it out there to the world. Anyone who wants to spam me, like tell convince me otherwise. But, um, I think you're gonna be very hard pressed to find anybody who's had even a sliver of experience in B2B sales tell me to my face that they do not struggle to get somebody on the phone or respond to email. I do not think you can find someone who's gonna be able to tell me that. That's like, I think that's one of the biggest points. So it's, it's, it's basically to, to ignore that the way people are wanting to buy things and engage with people is not changing is to basically ignore everything around you and it's to it's to frankly deny your own existence it's to, to deny the challenges that you face every single day you want evidence that you know the world is changing if you work in sales now if you're in that sliver that's that bucket of 20 percent of sellers i would say just look at how complex your own job is look at how much you have to do uh, look at how difficult it is to get a decision maker on phone, to get people to make decisions, to distill down information across so many different, you know, resources to help somebody. I mean, even, even let me, that I would, I would point and say, have you never had a sales deal stall because information came in from left field and, you know, in the 11th hour, of course you have, right. And, and that's, that's a reality of the world that you're living in is that there's this endless, um, access to what a buyer perceives as seemingly perfect information. And because the buyer perceives that there's perfect information out there, which there's not yet, but because the perception is out there that the perfect answer must exist. So too, the, the buyer believes the solution must exist and it must be yours. And if it's not yours, they will delay their buying process until they find it. Um, so that's one bit. And then I think the other bit that I'd point to as well, and I'll keep this brief because I know I'm a bit of a tangent here. You got to put time into perspective, you know, um, I think back to only 15, maybe 20 years ago, um, I was in high school, I think. And I remember getting access to the internet. And I think I wanted to buy like a, I don't know, a pack of baseball cards or something online. And there was an option to put in a credit card right there, I think. And I remember my, my, my mom or my dad saying something like, oh, be very careful with that internet stuff, buying, buying things online. How ridiculous does that sound today? Where we buy things right from this phone, little touch ID, boom, off, gone. If you just, again, think about how much society and cultural preferences can change over the course of only a decade, maybe two. It's not such a stretch of the imagination to think that 
the selling environment that we live in in 15 or 20 years is totally unrecognizable from the environment that we live in today. You want to hear something funny on that? Because you, you said 15, 20. I think I was at the first HubSpot Partner Day, I think was like three and a half years ago. It was the first time I ever took Uber. There you first go. I, three, and I'm, a, and I'm, not, I'm not a lag. I'm not a Luddite, right? I'm a <laughs> three and a half years ago. And I still remember thinking, I still remember thinking, why the hell am I going to get into somebody's car that I, I don't even know who they are. There's no, like, isn't that scary? I mean, yep. my parent, my mom still doesn't understand Uber, but it's, but they're not a taxi, right? And, and now it's like, you know, now it's like, don't do Uber because they're mean and, you know, they're mean people. So do, do Lyft or Airbnb right. or, mm -hmm. or, you know, and I, and I get that that's B to C, but I think any of those complex B to B people out there, uh, you know, the advantage that we have is we get to see the future before it happens because it happens mm -hmm. in B to C first. Exactly right. Totally agree with that. So, so now let's go to our tangent. We have not said anything new on this conversation so far, right? And I even think, you know, my friends on the sales side who, who are consulting and coaching and, and teaching people, you know, that, that the 67% number buyers are through 67% of their journey is crap and you need to pick up the phone and, you know, cold calling still works and all that. Even those people who, who, who say what they say because that's their business. I think they would agree with what, what we've said so far. I don't think there's anything you could disagree with. But it hasn't fundamentally changed. But if Rip Van Winkle woke up today and came to the sales side, it'd be the one place in the business where, where Rip would say, ah, oh, okay, this is still basically the same. So, so why hasn't it changed? What, what's the problem? Why, why are we making, are we just Don Quixote's fall, you know, pointing at windmills? Why has there been no change? I, I agree with, so just to chime in real quick, I totally agree with what, wholeheartedly with what Brian said uh, a couple of minutes ago around, you know, our job is fundamentally, anybody that's in the B2B space, complex sale, our job actually is getting harder. And that's why, I mean, I even have friends that have been in enterprise tech sales for 15, 20 years, and they're straight up just burning out because you have to work twice as hard now to get somebody to answer the phone and respond to an email. And that just becomes utterly, just absolutely exhausting. So, anyways, that, but we suck at it worse. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Why? So, here's a little. I'd love to get get your guys' opinions on this. I'm just going to throw some thoughts out there. I think there's a couple reasons that things haven't changed. Um, I think one part is that, and I'm probably going to get crucified for saying this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. From who? The people that I'm about to call out. Um, I think that there are people in their like 50s, 60s who are sales trainers and coaches who are still teaching the same sales playbook that they taught 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they're getting hired because sales is getting harder. Okay. And they're teaching the same playbook to all these people over and over and over again. And they can do it even if they disagree with what they are teaching. Even if they disagree with what they're teaching, they can still get away with it because guess what? Retirement's on the horizon for them and they can just ride it out. All right. So that's, I think, I fundamentally think that's, that's one of the reasons. Well, add, adding to that, Brian and, and Doug, we yeah. talk about this quite a lot of, 
you know, you've got a lot of VC backed or VC funded companies and they're throwing money at the problem. So they're, they're in essence buying, they're buying attention or buying a market by bringing in, like you said, that person that has a lot of, you know, Hey, I was successful 20 years ago and I'm just going to keep using that same playbook. And then what they do is they just say, okay, back to your question, Doug, of why do we still suck at it? Now it's, we're just, we're accelerating the suck with all of these tools around us to say, okay, instead of me being able to reach out to 50 people, now I can reach out to 200 in one single day. And we haven't fundamentally changed, you know, the, the way that we're bringing our messaging to, to market. And, but, you know, marketing still has a ways to go, but marketing is way ahead of sales in terms of, in terms of, uh, making, I mean, venture-funded companies don't market the same way they marketed 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying necessarily, but... Uh, I would... <laughs> I, 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 the, the VC-backed companies that I've worked for, which has been the past, prior to founding Seven Cents, was the past 15 years, nothing fundamentally changed in the sales process with those. And some of those are no. unicorns. No, 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 no. I, and, I, I, I know the sales it, process. It, it, no, I'm agreeing. No, yeah, I'm talking about even the even the marketing process. The marketing process still with a lot of VC-backed companies is, especially if you look at hardware tech, buy a list from Discover Org. Discover Org just bought you know a huge company today in Rain King. So buy a list from Discover Org, which is 97% accurate. Blast that list. You're going to get a ton of unsubscribes, ton of spam complaints, all of that. Rinse and repeat. We're going to do a booth at. VM world. We're going to do a booth at this show, a booth at that show. The, the, the marketing process for a lot of these VC backed companies fundamentally has not changed. That's it. my opinion. Brian, you've been with HubSpot for a long time. I think HubSpot, obviously they took a different approach to it, which is why they, they were able to accelerate their growth so fast. I, I, I love, ahead, I love I love HubSpot. My problem, and it's actually why I wanted to do this podcast to begin with, is everyone has the story, no one tells the truth, right? If if HubSpot followed their methodology the way they preach their methodology, I would not be a HubSpot customer. I was not looking for HubSpot. I was not wanting HubSpot. I was not a believer in having my assets. Um, owned by another company. I was a WordPress um, Joomla, which holy crap, that sucked. But I was a WordPress <laughs> Joomla. You got you to gotta own this and, and, and all that. And, and, and if there hadn't been somebody who continued to call me every period of time and, um, and initiate some aspect of conversation and things like that, that, that wouldn't have happened. So you've got this HubSpot story that says inbound, inbound, inbound. We only, you know, we never cold call. We never, we come in with our appointment set up. You've got the um, Atlassian. Um, we have no salespeople. We just hire third party consulting companies that do have salespeople. Um, and, and so like there's different strategies and tactics. So, so we play that game. And I do think HubSpot does, does a better job. But Brian, I want to get to the tangent that, that, that I had us avoid. I, I think there's a structural problem. I think the incentives are screwed up. So that's, so there's, yeah, so that, that those are the two other things I was going to point out. And, and, and by the way, like I can probably give you, I, I can't maybe, you know, you know, give away everything, but I can probably give a little bit of insight into how it really works. 
at HubSpot if you're, you know, dying to know. Um, I got a pretty good idea. Before I get down to that, yeah. So before I get down to that detail, um, yeah, I think the two other things are that, you know, one is that, you know, you push enough volume through the system, like you are going to get some people to buy from you, regardless of whether or not they're uh, like a good fit customer, an ideal customer. They're, you know, it just, it just, it purely is there, there, there is an element of, you know, the saying it's a numbers game that is still true. Doesn't mean that it's good for anybody. Doesn't mean it's good business or that the person who bought actually bought the right thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, salespeople generally speaking can be fairly convincing. Um, and they can convince people to buy things they don't need sometimes or often, you know, I you know what, I'm sorry, before we go down, I'm, cause I don't want to start the tangent and, and then stop it. I want, I want to, something just hit me cause I, I do want to take a step back as you were talking. I, I got reminded of a conversation I had really early in, in imagines, um, life. We, we were a sales advisory company at the time and I was working with, it was actually the first funded company that I'd worked with. Um, and I was doing sales training. Um, and then I was talking with management about, you know, we got to get in, we got to create value, this, we've got to focus and, and all this other stuff, all, all the things that are, that, that we know we should be doing. And I'll never forget what the CEO said to me. He said, he said, Doug, you are a hundred percent right. That's what we need to do. If, if we're going to judge success by the long term, right. But what you're asking me to do is, is going to take some investment and if it works, which I, and I'm not, he said, I'm not saying this is bad. 12 to 18 months before we begin to see the result from it. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that, right? And I'd be cool if it was 24 months if we were defining success. He said, but I've got a number that I've got to hit in six months. And if I don't hit that number in six months, it doesn't matter how good my strategy is. I'm at best fired and probably, you know, et cetera. So that's it. That's, said, that is, he said, so what do you do? You hit, the, you hit the heart of it. It's, it that's the fundamental problem is like that there, there, there are short-term expectations that need to be met. You don't have 24, this is, the, this is the problem, even with inbound marketing, people, people would, you know, people would say stuff like, look, inbound marketing, love that, love, love, love that. But here's the thing. I've got a lead gen number I got to hit this month. I'm going to buy a list. I'm going to put it in HubSpot anyway. You all right with that? At which point I had to say, no, I'm actually not all right with that. I'm like, here's something else you can do to kind of like work, work around that outside of our system. Uh, but I understand that. And I think that that's tied back to the point you're making, Doug, which is that there is a structural problem happening. And I think that structural problem, at least in part, is tied to the way in which salespeople are measured and compensated. I think, quote, I, I frankly think quotas are, I don't know if they're the root of all evil, um, but I certainly think they, they contribute, to, they contribute I, to some of the problems we have and the behavior that you see, not all salespeople taking, maybe not even the majority, but enough to leave the public perception thinking that everyone's slimy. I don't, I don't think that the problem is quotas. I think the problem is what the quota is. It, it's, it, it's what you measure gets done, but then it's also the story of Freakonomics and, and the story of Moneyball that says, you know, what you measure is the incentive, right? And, and I've, I've said for years, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm a big fan of a structural approach to sales is if, if I'm in sales and, I'm, and I've got a number to hit and my number is close sales and you give me a lead, I, I'm, I'm stupid if I spend any unnecessary time with anybody who's not close to making that purchase because it's like expecting that your real estate agent is going to try to get you the highest price. 
right? I mean, no, no offense. The incentive is real estate agents make money when they move houses fast. What's the lowest price I can get you to sell it at so you feel good? That's, that's what it is because anything so that makes the, it harder, it's not worth it. This is the thing that drives me nuts. It's like, you know, you, and, and Grant, this is a little side note maybe, but still, like, this is what drives me nuts is that, you know, that behavior is spot on that like, look, I'm not going to get you the highest price, but I will get the deal done for you. It's going to be a little bit less than you asked for, but like, we'll move that thing through because that's the incentive structure you put in place for me. Same exact type of thing happens when heads of sales say, geez, you know, our team's discounting so much, you know, oh man, like, you know, they're, they're eroding that. They're not holding our margins. So, so why do you think that is? Because you've given them an incentive to push as much volume through the system as possible. You, I mean, unless you have a, a structure set up, that has clawbacks and has some sort of measure of quality involved and, you know, or, or but, throws out. But you know what? The you know what? Itself. I mean, you're always going to have these problems. Always. You know what? Have. You know, the truth of the matter is maybe, maybe with clawbacks, you'll get somebody that will maybe check to make sure that they'll legitimately buy because the clawback can hurt them. But I'm either going to hit my number and I'm going to get praise and I'm going to make club and I'm going to travel or I'm going to get fired. Right. right. It's a pip. So, it's, it's either it's P club or pip. Like that's right. That's, you know, it's a huge carrot and stick world that we've created. And then you, you know, you, you blame the rep for all the behavior. Better to risk callbacks. By, by the way. Right. Exactly. If, if I'm crushing my number, if I'm crushing my number and my churn sucks, what, what's my manager going to do? They're going to say, Hey, you're doing a great job, but let, 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 let's coach you on this. If I'm not hitting my number because I'm at a hundred percent retention, because I'm doing a great job of making sure we're getting right fit customers, but I'm not hitting my number. What's going to happen to me? I'm going to be fired. Exactly. And you know, what makes it yeah. worse is that I can't tell you the number and I won't name any names, but I cannot tell you the number of sales leaders and managers I've spoken with. And we talk about churn. Their first response is sell through it, sell through the churn. And I'll tell them, look, like, let me tell you a story about a company called constant contact. You may have heard of them. And when you, you know, and granted, it doesn't change your behavior. Like, and I get it. I've been a sales rep. I've been a manager. And when I'm faced with taking a deal down to add to that percentage attainment versus thinking like, gee whiz, this isn't like the best customer we've ever found. And I'm not 150% convinced that they're buying the exact perfect right thing. I'm going to sell the deal. If I, if, if there is a deal to be sold and that, that's just, it, it's basically, it, it's, it's a, it's a calculation that humans are making constantly is it's the risk reward. Well, well, and, and, and the other thing too, and I'm really going to walk into a, <laughs> you said you're going to get crucified. I'm about to get crucified. <laughs> Bad. Um, we, we tell our, our salespeople to be customer centric, think like our customer, do the right thing, solve for the customer. Then we discount because we discount to win the deal. And then, and then we sell and I've got to hit my number. Right. And, and, and let's be honest, the salesperson doesn't set the discount. Right. Or if they do, then, then, and I know that sometimes we say you can discount to X, but, but here's the question. Like, let, let's say I say that you can discount up to 15% and I say, make sure you do the best thing for the client. Make sure you do your best thing for your customer. What percentage of deals should come and discount at 15%? The sales rep's going to do hundred percent of them. Well, they're, if they they're not, if they can, yeah. But, but if, if the sales rep is going to do the best thing for the customer, they're going to start off at 15% discount right now. Yeah, but, but, but we don't, but we don't because we're trying to hit our MRR number. Right. 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 right? Yep. And so, so right off the bat, we're not doing the best thing for our customer. It's like, I know I could get you a better discount and I want, and, and I'm here to help you and all this. So, I mean, we create all these, 
silly little games that come in. But to, to make sure that we give purpose, like what do we do with this? First question, you're talking to my friend, that, that client that I told you about really early, who said, Doug, I agree with you 100%, but you know what? The, all those strategies make sense beyond six months. I, I lose all my oxygen in six months. Would you tell him to do anything differently? Would you tell him not to take the volume approach? It's a tough, it's a really, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I you know, I don't know. I think if I, if I, if you held the gun against my head or held the microphone against my mouth, I guess here, um, I think, I, I don't know. I, I think that it, it really depends on. It depends. If you were in his seat. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think it really what it depends on. You, you'd have to, you really just have to look at, you know, where is this business operating? What industry are they in? What types of products are they selling? Are they selling more on the commoditized in the spectrum versus the, like, are they selling vitamins or aspirin? You know, is it nice to have versus need to have? Like, what are, what are they kind of selling? Like, you know, I, I'd want to break down the whole funnel. I want to understand, like, what the market, all sure. that, right? But without trying to, you know, skirt a question, I would. I would tell them, look, like, yeah, like, you, you basically don't have a choice. If I looked at their cash burn rate and said, yeah, like, if you don't keep selling, you're going to be out of business. You're not going to be able to make payroll. I probably would. I would say keep selling that volume game, but start getting pockets of your sales team in this new motion try to sort of systematically reduce the risk over time so that you're not pulling it all out at once. You're kind of slowly switching it from one side to the other. It's tough because basically what you're asking is, you know, what you're basically asking or you're, you know, if, if I'm in your shoes, Doug, and I'm recommending that to the client, what I'm basically saying is, yeah, you know what, you got to make a switch and it's the same, it's a, the same move you've got to pull off is changing all four tires on a car while it's going 80 miles an hour down the freeway. That's basically what you have to do. So we're gonna we're gonna have you, you can't do it. You, you, you can't. Well, we're gonna have you back on the show because I think to to fix the structural problem that we're talking about here, you've got to fix the funder side. And, and and the problem is if 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 I've got a funder doing this, I mean my my recommendation was, you know what, you're right. I see that you have to do that. And he didn't have the resource or the ability to, to work both. It was a very, very early stage startup. And I said, you know, it really doesn't make any sense for you to work with me given that so that 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 was that result well uh, yeah and i i think to that point doug i mean the fundamental problem is this boils all the way to the top whether it's wall street looking at hey are you hitting your quarterly numbers average, average who cares how much money you're making average daily users yeah, every single quarter you can just get absolutely decimated so, so so one on the public side it comes from wall street the pressure on the, on the private side for VC back companies, it's coming from the VCs. As soon as they feel like, Hey, we're not seeing the growth and it's even just one quarter, they start to pull the ripcord and be like, this is not good guys. We got to hurry up and sell the company. Next thing you know, it becomes a yeah. fire sale or a bunch of people get fired, new people brought in. So this all boils to the top. It's not, you know, it, the sales problem is a byproduct of what's happening at the top, in my opinion. Just to build on that point, Mike, just to give you a small, you know, uh, short story about, you know, the, my first kind of taste of VC, the VC anything. This is probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. I was talking to a guy who was an angel investor and I was basically preparing a pitch deck. I was working at a really small startup company back then and saying, you know what, we need to raise money. We need to raise a lot of it. Uh, and here's how we're going to use it. And here's kind of the pitch and here's exactly what we want to go through. And he just looked at me and he said, are you really sure you want to raise money? And I said, Bruce, like, what choice do we have? And he said, well, let me tell you about how VC works. 
So the day that you get a VC check written for a million, 10 million, whatever, he said is one of the most exciting and most terrifying days of your life at the same moment. He said, here's why. Because the day that check is written, yeah, you've got the check in hand, but the second you walk away with that check, they put a shotgun to the back of your head and they are just waiting to pull the trigger. And that's, I don't know if anyone else admits that openly, but that's the truth. That is literally the game they're playing. They're betting on 10 ponies. They're trying to figure which one out of the 10 is going to pay off. They take the other nine out back. On a side note, because I I, want to get to a bigger threat in a second, but the thing that I think a lot of people forget, especially in this whole tech world, is what they forget is when, when the funder funds you, they, you know, they're betting one in 10, that whole thing, which has always been the case. But, but the other thing is they also have the network that they know if you fail and, and, and look, we can look at a lot of companies that have been funded by companies that we may know, they will go unnamed that, that the real, the real idea behind the funding is, has nothing to do with, I think this company is going to be, you know, a runaway success company. It's, I think this company is going to do R and D and focus on one part of the market for less money than it would cost me to do it myself. And if they succeed, great, I own part of them. And if they don't succeed, I'll just take them out and either, you know, sell them to somebody else. And, and I, the funder, will come out okay because I'll, you know, um, you know I'll, I'll, I'll take away, I'll, I'll dilute all your equity, et cetera. I mean, there's a thousand ways that the funder never gets hurt. But let me, let me put you on the spot and ask you a question, Brian. Um, what, for you, using HubSpot as a, let's just say that it's a representative sample of forward-thinking small mid-market companies, given that that's, it's space. What percentage of, of HubSpot customers do you think are either public or funded? Uh, I'd say a very, very small percentage. Small being less than what? Less than five, less than 10? Where would you, less than 20? Well, I mean, the HubSpot for startups thing kind of. Okay, take the HubSpot for startup out. All right, if you took, so the, HubSpot for, if you took the HubSpot for startups bit out, I'd say less than less than 5% of our customers are publicly traded companies. Maybe less. And I'm not sure off, I mean, off the cuff. I yeah, no I mean, that's fine. But a, a small percentage. Very small. Yeah. My, my friend who was funded, who had a six month lifespan, right? He had to get there, get it. You, there's, there was no prize for, for almost winning. You either won big or you lost. It was that simple. That, that, that applies to less than 1% of businesses in the world. And, and you have all these small and mid-market businesses that are playing this same stupid game. And, and you're going to get caught. Like, if you've got to play that volume game and, and do that, okay, I, I can't fight that right now. But what should – why is the non-funded world still so screwed up when it comes to sales? Why are we still – we are dealing with the same problem today that we dealt with when I did my first sales training to a group of travel agents, believe it or not and I hate to say this, 25 some years ago. Brian said he was in high school 15 or 20 years ago. I used to think I was the, I used to be the young guy. Now I'm like the old stage. Hey, you get off my lawn. Why why is sales unable to get out? I mean, why is it still stuck in a stone? I don't, well, more I, importantly, know, what do you do? More importantly, what do you do? I guess I got talker's block, which I usually yeah, say, yeah. you know, talker's block or writer's block doesn't. You ever hear the saying, writer's block doesn't exist because there's no such thing as talker's block? There you go. We just found it. 
Uh, someone yeah. else, I think maybe I don't, someone smarter than me said that one time. Let me, well, let I, me, I, I think Doug, I think part of one of the fundamental reasons that, it, that, that we're still stuck is one, the people that are in sales leadership roles are the ones that are still following the same playbooks 15, you know, that they had 15 years ago. Um, and, and, and two, nobody has, nobody has designed the new kind of, you know, hey, here's the new playbook that you really should be following. Oh, I beg to differ. Well, I don't, <laughs> but that was, that was a nice little tee up for you. But uh, I think that's what really one of the fundamental problems. So here's, I know we're running out of time, so I, I want to make sure we, we cover a piece that, that really struck me. And I, and, I, and I think the game is getting, I think the, the, the cliff that we're on is getting bigger and the game, the stakes of the game are, are, are getting greater. Um, and I think it all comes down to value creation. And, and, and it's funny because the very first article I wrote in, in 2003, because I knew I was going to start my company in 2004, was all about avoiding the commoditization trap. It's funny, like there's a five-year period that I didn't talk about commoditization because like that stopped being the thing. It was, and now commoditization is coming right back. Um, and, and what I said was, um, here's how to know if, if you're avoiding commoditization. Are you creating value? When, when you make a sales call, did the, did the salesperson, um, if, if I had to pay for that sales call, would I have paid for that sales call? Was there, was there enough value created? If I, if I read your marketing material, I, I used to say this in the 1990s. If I were to read your marketing material, if I was to read your ad, is there enough value being created that, that I would have paid to see that ad, right? And, and then now we have blogging, which is, you know, that's basically what, what that is. Um, I think it comes down to, well, I think, I think you've got a structural issue with incentives, but then I also think it's still this idea that we view salespeople and the sales function as, as carrying a message rather than let's create value. And value is binary. You're either creating it or you're extracting it. And, and, and as an artificial intelligence picks up, it's, re, it, it's getting closer and closer and closer to being able to replace that buy from somebody that I like, that if you don't do that, that that's the death knell. Ring, that, you know, that's the light coming at the end of the tunnel. And guess what? It's a train. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of validity to that point. Um, I think the, the issue, um, you know, I, th I don't know. I think, I, I think you're right about the commoditization. I think it's, it's tough for me to imagine a world where a prospect would say they would pay for a sales call. And I wonder if, or like to see an ad. I mean, I, I know you're not saying that, well, just that think, way. Think about this, Brian. I, I mean, I, the, the number one complaint that I get, not complaint, the number one question that I get from people when they read my blog and they look at the content that we let people download is they say, how can you justify giving so much away for free? And, and my response is I'm not giving it away for free. I'm, I'm asking for the scarcest resource on the planet. When you read, when you read my blog, you're paying for it. When you open my email, you're paying for it. Right? That's you're true. Paying, yeah, you're I mean, paying with attention. Yeah, I mean, I guess and, if you're looking at time as currency, then yes, or attention cool. as currency, yes. I mean, that really is all, that is, that is the, I guess, arguably the only currency. Well, I mean, think about this. What, there are more blogs today than ever before. And, and they suck worse than ever before. Why? Because people are throwing crap out there, right? We're, 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 someone said, 
produce, someone said, we've run the numbers and we see if you blog once per week, here's your lead volume. If you blog twice per week, here's your lead volume. And, and so people said, okay, let's put 16 blogs up per month. Mm -hmm. But but we didn't look at it and say, well, when I read that blog, am I getting value from it that says that was worth what I paid for it, my attention? Wow, I want to read that blog again. I mean, Siggy, why were you always a good salesperson? And Donnelly, I know this is true with you. Why? And you, you, did, you did not become a salesperson because you wanted to get into sales. If we, if we had more time, I, I'd have you tell the story about your triple and, <laughs> and, and how you kind of ended up in sales, yeah. right? But, I mean, you were, you, you were a, an analyst, CEB guy, consultant. And what did you do? You analyzed and you consulted. Someone talked to you and they said, I'm smarter for that. Yeah, I mean, and I just... Why, and that's why they talked to you again. I believed, I mean, I was a customer, I was also a customer. I had done the, whatever the opposite of inbound marketing is. I, I did the opposite of inbound marketing. I spent tons of money getting it wrong. And then someone showed me how to not get it wrong anymore. And granted, you know, it, it doesn't work quite exactly the same way that it did, you know, seven years ago when I was doing that, but it did work. Um, and I just felt really passionately about being able to teach other people how to do that, how to avoid you know, making the mistakes that I made. Um, I just kind of enjoyed the complexity of a business problem and, and just having an open conversation with someone about all the different options they've considered and, and which ones they think might work and why and, and what sort of implications that has. And then, you know, I, I, I would even get really personal people and I would try to really, especially for the small businesses, I would try to understand like, why do you even do this? Why do you run this business? Like, what is the personal motivator for you? Um, and I just, I, I literally enjoyed those things as ends in themselves. The so, telling byproduct was, you know, it was, it was nice. It was interesting, but it wasn't, for me, it wasn't like the chase or the clothes or the commission check that really got me fired up. It was just the fact that I could have all these, it was more the kind of variety of all these crazy challenges that people would have and want a little bit of help with. Um, that, that was actually interesting to me. So and that was rooted in being an analyst. Mike, you talked about the fact there's not enough talent out there to do the software development to have the future of AI match what everyone's saying today. That may or may not be true. You know that far more than I do. Here, here's what I know. There's not enough Brian Signorelli's out there in the world who naturally on their own want to create that value. Look at it from yep. that standpoint. Um, you can't staff or scale a sales team. And by the way, we talk about the, the future of salespeople. Here's a scary stat for you. This, um, this is from Serious Decisions. As of today, actually, this is from before today. But today, for the next 13 years, 10,000 salespeople every day become retirement eligible. And, and, and think, about, think about the talent pool of, of who's coming behind them. Um, you know, as an ex-CEV guy, you'll appreciate the lone wolf comment. You know, lone wolf may have been unmanageable, but but at least they figured it out. They, they, they you know they found their own methodology to do things. We don't really have lone wolf salespeople coming in anymore, and so you get on a call, you you get in a sales interaction, and it and it's it's like the most boring thing you've ever heard before. What what is your advice as we begin to wrap this up? What's your advice to the business owner or senior executive? who's sitting around saying, yeah, I don't want to play this. I don't want to play the venture game because that's not my game. I'll lose that. 
I want to, I want to play to my strengths. I want to play my game. What, what's your advice, Brian? We'll start with you as the uh, writer of the upcoming book on, uh, literally, you're writing a book on inbound selling. Um, what is, what, what should that executive do today to be in a position to, to win tomorrow? Uh, like from any any particular angle in terms of like sourcing talent or like kind as of it relates, as it relates to sales and sourcing talent and, and making it you know if if you were running it today if you had if you left HubSpot and you started your business yeah. today and you didn't get funding how would you build it what would you do yeah so I mean um, a couple of things so I mean I think one is yeah I mean you, you are having this kind of retirement wave coming up um, you know kind of look at your own workforce understand who might be on the who might be on that horizon it's going to depend on your business some are going to be um maybe you know maybe like at hubspot's case like 80 percent are not on their way out right um mostly young very young salesforce other businesses like i don't know for some reasons like anybody that like is uh in the copier dealer world for me some reason that stands out is like i don't know maybe that's just a weird perception maybe i'm totally wrong there but like Maybe that's an older workforce. I'm not sure. Um, so, but I do think one one bit, regardless of kind of what your current workforce structure is, one of the most important things you can always be doing is figuring out how to source talent that's ultimately going to help you create revenue for your business. Um, if there's one thing I've learned, and and frankly, I'm kind of like a I'm like a tweener in the generations. I'm not quite a millennial, but I'm I'm not I'm not a, a Gen Gen Xer, I guess, or I don't know if the Gen Y. Anyway, I'm not really sure on the whole sequence of that, but you know where I'm going. I'm not really in any one of those generations. I think I'm like in a two-year missing gap. Anyway, what I have seen managing plenty of millennials is, um, you know, you do have two interesting things happening. I think one is no one wants to get into sales because they still view it as this like slimy, like snake oil type profession, um, especially if they've had even one bad experience ever with any salesperson usually like usually happens. I, I hate to say it cause I know people that do sell cars that aren't like this, but like, and I've had some awesome car buying experiences myself, but that sometimes where they see it or experience it for themselves for the first time. But I think the counter argument to that is, you know, the millennials also present or represent an enormous opportunity um, because the thing that they value the most is, is vision and mission of your business. And if you can get them to psychologically attach um, or emotionally attach to the vision and purpose and meaning behind what your business does, um, I think you can actually reframe the way that millennials think about sales in general. And I think, you know, you can actually start kind of de depending on whether or not you're trying to scale or just grab one or two. Um, you know, I think you can actually get a, a bunch of you know, really engaged employees in your workforce. And I think the other thing, you know, that you have to be, um, if I were consulting on this, I'd say the thing you have to be aware of is that uh, I don't think we're there yet. I don't even think we're two or three years away from it necessarily. I think we're probably a little bit further out than that. Um, but AI is coming and AI is coming hard um, for everybody. And anything that is kind of a mundane, repeatable task uh, can and will be automated. Um, I can guarantee you that that's going to be like a place to cut costs in business is anything that I can take away from a rep that, uh, is not, um, kind of disparately connecting information. Like there's a really interesting Ted talk I watched recently is about four minutes long that says in the future, you know, what makes AI possible is when you give it like really clearly defined repeatable tasks, that's what machines can do today. You can, re you can give that, you can give that, um, 
you can give that to an AI or to a bot to do that for somebody. What a bot can't do is bots cannot connect disparate human experiences and formulate new opinions and perspectives based on a variety of, you know, not variety, millions of data sets and, and experience we've had throughout our lifetime. So I think those are the two yeah. big, one is, you know, wake up to the fact that you, you just, if you're ignoring technology, you, you're, you're going to go the way of the dodo. You have to adopt it. Uh, you don't have a choice anymore. It's not an option. It's, it's, it's a requirement. And I think the second bit is, you know, um, don't write off the millennial generation. There is more value there than I think people give them credit for. I think it's just a way in framing what your business does, whether it's a service or a product or some hybrid, um, framing how, how what you do matters um, to those people that I think, you know, you can, you can, you can, you can make, it, make a difference in, in your business. Mike, anything you want to add? Uh, first, <laughs> music to my ears about, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not looking and utilizing the tools and technology that's there today from an AI perspective, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You're, you're going to lose the battle. Uh, you brought up an awesome point, um, Brian. I, I really hadn't thought about it, but we recently hired a new sales rep. And that is a question that comes up or came up quite a bit during the interview process. It's like, hey, what's your guys mission what's the core value and he's you know he's just right out of college and i actually interviewed quite a few folks and that theme seemed to come up quite a bit so thanks for you know thanks for pointing that pointing that out and it's a tricky one i mean there's like a lot of people out there that think that the millennials aren't kind of willing to do anything like a very lazy generation or you know too uh, too hungry to move up like the management chain too quickly. Like it's this whole world of entitlement. Like everyone gets a trophy, right? I, my, my younger, my youngest brother was part of that generation, six years, only six years younger than me. I mean, he was part of the, everyone gets a trophy generation. But I do think that if you can somehow get them to, to psychologically attach to something that is bigger than themselves, ideally the products and the services or the mission that your business fulfills, I think that's where I think that's where you can differentiate yourself from other businesses trying to grab that talent. Um, I know, Doug, you got to look in your face, kind of like, eh, I don't buy no, that. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, that at the risk of and, and trying to wrap this up, then I'm going to draw yeah. out this other tangent. Is I think that <laughs> see, I think the biggest place where businesses miss the ball is that they have not accepted their responsibility to to put their people in a position to be successful. Um, they, they don't have the content. They haven't built the website. They say things like, oh, well, you know what? We were, you know, we made sales back before there was a website. Well, who gives a shit, right? Um, yep. you, know, it, you know, we have a crappy website that says crappy things that looks like shit. And then we go, why isn't my salesperson hitting their number? Well, you're out there telling people that you've got the best solution. But then I go to your website and it looks like it's, you know, a wrapper out of 1972. Yes, I understand there are no websites in 1972. I'm exaggerating, right? And then we play. Or doesn't have SSL enabled. Or doesn't have SSL enabled. Or God forbid, DKIM. Um, but right, so so we 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 forget that. And and so what I was going to say, the look on my face was, um, that trophy. I mean, my son grew up in the tro in the trophy generation. And Mike, you you've talked to my son. There, there's nobody brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, he he is so outside of that um see 
I don't think he's that outside. I think that, that yeah, they had the trophy. Yeah, you got a tr- participation trophy. My son hates to lose. I, I know a lot of the millennials at, at, at HubSpot, they hate to lose. They're not about participation trophies, but it's like we expect, I find this true whether it's millennials or non-millennials. I expect you to be motivated to kick ass, give no excuses, get shit done, make it happen. But I haven't invested in the website and I haven't done this. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting yeah. a mediocre product out there from a sales and marketing perspective. And then I'm blaming my people for, for the lack of success. And, and, and I think that the danger is that middle where, where you could get by because you were good enough. That's what AI is taking over. Right? I mean, that, that's where technology is going to take that over because they're, they're going to make it smoother. But the place where you have, there, there, there will always be room for insights. What are you doing as a business to put your people in a position to give insights? Right. And, and so I, I mean, I, I love what you said, Brian, I, I would add, that's what you're looking for on the people side. You owe the vision, but, and I see this all the time with salespeople, you know, I got, I always say, why would, why would someone work for your crappy little company? And by the way, I say that about me. Why would someone work for my crappy little company? Yeah. I've got my vision and I've got all these big things, but, but to somebody who's not me, that, that doesn't mean anything. And, and we go out and we tell this story and then we hire the salesperson that like goes, oh my God, that's the greatest in the world. This is a huge opportunity. Yeah, I can't wait. And then we go, well, why did they fail? Well, well, they failed because the person was actually good enough to sell your stuff, heard your vision, but looked at your website, heard how you answered questions, saw there was really nothing there and said, yeah, I'll go work for HubSpot. Yeah, I'll go work for you know, this next startup or, 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 or whatever. And, and it's not because of stock options. It, it's because they saw that this company is making an investment in me. They're going to make my job easier. And I think we can't miss that. You know what? So I would say to answer my question that I asked you, Brian, what are you doing as an executive? What can you demonstrate that says we're making the life of our salespeople easier? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've told, I've told CEOs, uh, and, and granted, I mean, this is this. I don't even think this was part of a sales conversation. I, I've told CEOs, I've told heads of marketing, heads of sales. I've said point blank, um, I will never work for a company that does not basically invest in me, like the way that you're saying, Doug, um, and make my job give basically increase the odds that I'm successful. Um, and I've I, I, the way I've interpreted, or the way I've actually specifically said it is, I'll never work for a company that doesn't use HubSpot. Because I can't, I, I will never be able to do my job without leaving time. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no chance. And, and now that, you know, I use our CRM um, and I've seen kind of what, what is possible with, you know, some of the inside sales technology and using tools like Slack and the, the list of things goes on. Um, but if a company is not making those investments, it's still using either no system or outdated systems that are clearly, you know, not up to... I don't even know what standard benchmarking system you use. I mean, G2 crowd, trust rate, I don't know. I mean, choose whatever you want. Um, but if they're not making those investments, I want absolutely nothing to do with them because that is just a, it's not the problem. It's the, it's, it's, you know, it's where there's smoke, there's fire. And that's the yeah. smoke. That's a great point. Brian, this is awesome. I could be, we're, we're an hour in. I could talk to you for another hour. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to find cause to do this again sometime. I certainly will. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been really, really, really enjoyable. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Really appreciate you, uh, you making some time to be a part of it. Absolutely.